Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. We should be clear, the sectors that we service, they're not new industries. They're new sectors within industries that are dominated by powerful incumbents that are not interested in going quietly into the night. This is a full contact game. And we better have good team dynamics on our side because the actual playing field is quite rough. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I am so honored that you're joining me for another fantastic foray into the world of cleantech marketing here on Suncast. This week, we have got an amazing episode. Today's entrepreneur, maybe you recognize from his cameo appearance first at our podcast lounge back in Salt Lake City. And he's quickly become one of the people I look to with admiration and anticipation. He seems to always be on the vanguard of what's next in the clean economy dialogue. For 30 years, Mike Casey has focused on the design, staffing, and strategies for winning communications programs. And as Tigercom's founder and CEO, he counsels clean tech executives, investors, and philanthropists on strategies to meet their business objectives. I think that Mike is a classic example of an iconoclast. Today, we talk about his views on Marcom and how it needs to always be in service of revenue generation, how Mike's team gets inside the heads of prospects to help them convey their message better, what he learned about running a business from being a three-time gold medal jiu-jitsu champion. We get insights from Mike on the leading communication practice in 2020, the difference between content and insight, and what exactly thought leadership actually means. This is one of those interviews where you finish and you know immediately that it's podcast gold. Really, this is easily one of my all-time top conversations I've recorded here on Suncast. And if you love this episode, then I hope that you'll check out more than 250 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. You can sign up to receive a notification of new episodes and other ways that we are consistently seeking to serve this community more effectively. But for now... Get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warrior, today we're going to talk with one of the entrepreneurs in the marketing, communications, public relations space that many of you probably know. I certainly admire and look to for inspiration, innovation, and leadership. It goes out saying that if you're familiar with how the marketing and public relations business works in clean tech, you're definitely familiar with Tigercom. The founder and president of Tigercom, Mr. Mike Casey, has been an established authority in the space for many, many years, operating out of Washington, D.C., and representing hundreds, if not thousands, of, uh, of well-known and respected businesses in this industry and helping them get to that position and place in time. Now, he has, beyond just working directly with clients, trained thousands of people in, as well, interview techniques, message development, PR management, uh, both in the political realm and now, of course, in clean tech. And today, we get a chance to probe the mind and understanding not just of the market, but of the world of communications with a guy that I am really eager and grateful to have on the show. Mike Casey, welcome to Suncast. Hey, Nico. Thanks for having me back. It's fun. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, we had a good time back in uh, Salt Lake City at the podcast lounge. You were dropping some uh, wisdom around thought leadership. I know that's one of the areas that you particularly lean into. And I've been thinking a lot about what the background is of, of folks that I admire and guys that uh, guys and girls that I reach out to for advice as I do sometimes with you. And that is around family sort of early life history. I think you grew up in the Midwest, right? Ohio, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. I grew up on the West side of Cleveland in a big Irish Catholic neighborhood. Big Irish Catholic. And what were your parents involved in? Uh, both my parents were teachers. In fact, my dad 
retired from driver's education at the ripe old age of 89 after 59 years of teaching kids how to drive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There are literally, there are people that I've met in Cleveland who literally have had uh, their parents, they and their kids have all been, were all taught by my dad how to drive. Given that legacy, 89, and he probably started teaching in his 20s, that means that you know, he was teaching people to drive back in, uh, you know, like World War eras. Well, he, he was 17 when he went ashore at Iwo Jima, and he, was, he also fought at the Chosan Reservoir. What a heritage. What a heritage. So I know that we're going to talk a bit in a, in a little while, not, early, not, not super early into the interview. We're going to talk a bit about your own journey into sort of the, the warrior mindset. But given that historical context of your father, I wonder, maybe even besides him, who were your heroes growing up? I've had two or three coaches that have really risen to that level. I think my sophomore history teacher, American history teacher, was very formative for me. I got a couple of friends who I, I don't know if I'd say they're heroes, but I think they're definitely heroic. They're guys I deeply admire who served as tier one operators for SEAL Team 6 and Delta Force. They're, wow. they're pretty amazing. I think there are, I've had a string of what I'll call temporary heroes. That's not to diminish their heroics, but I, I, I've met some really phenomenal, decidedly ordinary people who are extraordinary in the, the duration of what they have done and the mm. importance of what they did. So, you know, the, my, my father was, he had his career ended when he was struck teaching a driver's ed class. He was, uh, the car he was in was T-boned by a young lady who was distracted on a cell phone. And so mm. my father had 21 bone breaks at, at 89 years of age and went through a five and a half month recovery, which was nearly miraculous in the turnaround. But there were two or three healthcare workers who, like one woman was literally her job at this LTAC center was to wash the bodies of helpless strangers, mm. wow. many of whom were never getting out of the center. They were going to die there. And she had done this for 29 years, 29 years of washing the bodies of helpless strangers. And, and I knew this because I watched her take care of my father, the humanity that she exhibited when she performed this vital task, right? Without, without her doing what most people would write off as manual labor, you know, these people would get bed sores and their life would be dramatically shortened, many of them not recover. And I've just seen really amazing people do what others view as ordinary things, but do them in with extraordinary humanity and steadfastness and skill. And I think that in terms of like people I've met who are living people, I've always been taken by the people who bring us an unusual amount of intention and attention to performing important things, however ordinary they might strike others as being. I love that you just used that word ordinary as well, because I read a quote one day that stuck with me. It says, uh, a hero is an ordinary individual that finds the strength to persevere in spite of overwhelming obstacles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're recording this. We're recording it during the, you know, the pandemic, COVID-19, mid, late March at this point. Uh, and the U.S. has finally overtaken uh, China in number of cases. So I feel like there's a period of our of our history where we're seeing uh, these heroes emerge, these people who were going about their ordinary lives, and now it's yep. turned upside down. You know, ordinary people who've risen to extraordinary levels of greatness mm-hmm. because the circumstances invited them to do so, and it was a choice. They weren't forced to it. They weren't forced into this greatness. Yeah. They chose to perform service for their country, their faith, their fellow person, because it moved them to do so. They chose it. And I think that's, that's extraordinary. I can't recall when I actually first heard about you or, or first heard your name. But when I realized all the companies you'd worked with, I thought, man, this is remarkable. Someone who understands well how to create a platform train folks to stand on it, train the light on that person. And, you know, your entire career effectively not, not necessarily seeking to stand in the light, but rather to, to help others uh, find that stage. I think that's really cool. 
How did you decide that you really wanted to sort of lean into politics, which was kind of the first part of your career? Tell me the, help me understand why that came about. The career trajectory that I'm on started in 1982, in the fall of 1982, when I read Lester Brown's The 29th Day. At the time, he was the premier global environmental trends counter. And this book was one of, gosh, two, three dozen he's written over the course of his career. And they all have the same contention that we are treating our natural resource base. We're living off the principle, not the interest. We're treating our biological pantry like a toilet. There's too many of us. And it just doesn't, it's just fundamentally not working. And we're, we're solving for the unworkability through temporary measures that are brought about by, you know, these remarkable brains that we have as human beings. But we've got to engage in major change. That was clear to him 35 years ago. That's really clear to me now. And, and it was clear when I read this book, I thought, I'm going to do something about this problem. That's what I'm going to devote my life to doing. And then the two years later, I took a class. It was a campaigns and elections class. And this pro-environment state senator in Ohio, who represented the Ohio State campus area, lost a re-election on a, on a, a kind of a dirty trick negative ad play at the last minute. And it was done by Lee Atwater, who most of your listeners are not going to remember, but he was George H. Bush's political Svengali and kind of pioneered the, the um, slash and burn tactics that have become so uh, prevalent in politics now. And he was the political director for the Republican National Committee, and he targeted the state senator to knock him off so they could move closer to a redistricting control of the legislature. That night, when Michael Schwarzwalder lost, he was the state senator, a lot of his supporters were felt very, they were really down the dumps. He was, an, he was a, a progressive icon and had made some mistakes in the campaign, but had lost because we were bringing in plastic forks and knife fights. And so I thought, aha, if I'm going to be committed for the rest of my life to environmental sustainability, then my skill set would lend itself to political or issue communications. I'm going to learn from the best. And the best are not my community. They're not people in the environmental movement because I don't think the environmental community has been a better set of communicators for as long as I've been professionally active. We've always been behind. And I just think that I, I wanted to solve that problem. That's I was gonna I was gonna try to raise the bar on pro-sustainability communication. So I wanted the environmental movement, or sorry, I went into politics for 10 years. And I was a spokesman for the House, the Senate, uh, a party committee. I worked on two presidential campaigns. And I did a U.S. Senate race in Alabama because I really want to understand the South better. And, and then I left politics and I went into the environmental movement and I was there for 10 to 12 years. And I was essentially, I was a lead communicator for two national groups. And the second one, I was kind of sort of a, a chief of staff or a co-chief of staff. And I learned a lot about managing communicators and how to design a communications department. And along the way, it occurred, I had three slow realizations. One is that we were trying to beat something with nothing. We were against coal, but we didn't have something we could be for that was viable, credible, and ready to go. Number two the infrastructure to deliver that alternative and the narrative of that alternative was very weak and underdeveloped. And then the third realization was that we had a skills and talent gap. And I thought about the different ways that I could solve those three challenges. And I came up with deductively the idea of this firm. And so I started the firm 15 years ago. We started off working for NGOs. We then migrated over to really working for the climate change campaigners to the climate solutions providers. And that's where we've really established ourselves. And I must say that I'm a better fit for working with solutions providers than I am for people who are pointing out the problem and demanding we stop doing problematic things. I think it's we're just in a much better position if we can say what things we should do. I also will say that, you know, after 25 years in it, I, I really I grew tired of politics and the nonprofit world, there's just a lot of human dysfunction knows no bounds. But as I, 50 years of age, I began to see that there was just a, there's just a lot of 
politics and politics, so to speak, which forces you to work really hard to get to the work table. And I just didn't want to do that anymore. I just, I used to have an attitude where I would work for anybody and with anybody who would help me move the needle on sustainability. And, you know, you get to be my age, you buried a few friends and you just see that life, life is not infinite. You're only on this planet for a short period of time and you might as well make the most of it. And for me, it's working with people who are low drama, low dysfunction, and low dishonesty. We call it the 3D rule. Uh-huh. And so we, we have a 3D screen on our clientele. So it's low drama. Low dysfunction, low uh-huh. dishonesty. How do you test for dysfunction? I just watch and see if people do what they say on the little stuff. Dysfunctional behavior, if you're observing, it pops up very quickly. If someone's going to display a healthy dose of it, you're going to see them engage in passive-aggressive electronic communications. You know, for example, at, at our firm, it's, it's a company policy that you can get fired over. If you, if you try to handle an issue with a charge by email or text message, it's a violation of our company policy. You have to put your big boy, big girl pants on and go talk to the person you're having the issue with. Because communicating sustainability is stressful. PR is a stressful industry regardless. PR agency ownership and working there, arguably the most stressful forms of mass communications. It's just too much to ask people, talented people to come work for you to then put up with a bunch of nonsense within the walls of the company, much less outside the walls of the company. You can't control you know, what happens outside your walls, nearly extent you can control what happens inside the walls and you just set the standard. And that requires me to do the same. Like, you know, we, we call it keeping the floor clean. It's in, inevitably, there's going to be misunderstandings and tensions. And if you have a commitment to keep the floor clean between people, you get so much better esprit de corps and so much better teamwork and trust. Now, we should be clear, the sectors that we service, they're not new industries. They're new sectors within industries that are dominated by powerful incumbents that are not interested in going quietly into the night. This is a full contact game. And we better have good team dynamics on our side because the actual playing field is quite rough. Are there specific tools, mental models, management tools, frameworks that you learned in your 20s and 30s that you employ now with ease and you can, and you can see that they actually help your business move? Oh yeah, for sure. So one of my mentors was my professor in graduate school, Lyle Barker. He's still alive, by the way. And he he was chief of information for the U.S. Army after the Vietnam War. And the Army had a very negative reputation out in the American public. And Lyle played not a small role in turning that around. And his core lesson was that there is no such thing as getting it out there into the public. There is getting targeted groups of people to engage in an awareness, attitude, and behavior change in that order. And once you begin thinking in terms of an organizational or company return on investment, we're going to support this business goal with our communications efforts. And we are going to get this group of people engaged in considering seeing things differently or being aware of something or acting differently. Then what you say to them becomes much more self-evident, not entirely, but more. And that framework has really formed the basis of my entire professional career. I remain surprised by the number of communications dollars that are wasted by companies, individuals, and NGOs on generalized communications. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the country's got 325 million people in it. The average attention span is seven seconds or less. We're on screens 5.7 hours a day. You're bombarded with 15,000 messages a day. The amount of mental clutter that any decision maker be they a buyer or a voter or somebody you just want them to consider a point of view is overwhelming. If you're not clear and directed, you stand a fraction of a chance that you would otherwise have of engaging with those people. You know, what comes to mind for me as I'm thinking about all the appropriate or potentially thoughtful ways I could explore the work that you do and and help others understand that work it's multifaceted because you are the leader of an organization. You're the founder, i.e. entrepreneur. You work with other leaders. Sometimes they're entrepreneurs. Sometimes they're not. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're corporate types. And by that, I mean, just career, they're, they're sort of career focused and a large organization, perhaps uh, focused. When you are engaging with a client, where do you find that you're most often helping them 
overcome problems or address issues? What do you get, i.e., kind of, what do you mainly get called in for? And what are you also looking for as you're engaging with that client? Yeah, so those are those are two related but really different questions. So what do what problems do we most typically solve? We most typically solve the problem of legacy marketing for cutting edge companies. I call it the clean economy paradox. Brilliant people, really impressive advances in products, good management, smart teams, great at pitching money to investors. But with that brilliance comes some very old-fashioned legacy concepts of marketing. So that's the problem that we get called in the most. Let me just restate that more succinctly for the listener. The problem that we are most commonly asked to solve, in effect, is we want to sell more and we're having trouble getting prospects to engage as efficiently as we need them to. And that's the problem that we solve most often. We solve other problems, and in no particular order, they are ensuring you get fair treatment from from policymakers at any level of government. We are often asked to come help a company narrate itself to acquirers or investors. We are sometimes brought in to handle a severe crisis where you've got hundreds of millions of dollars of company valuation at stake. I think those are those four encompass a large majority of what we do. For me is interesting because I think about Tigercom as a comms and, and PR focused firm is not trying explicitly to play in the field of being a marketing agency. And as a salesperson, biz dev person, when I hear about that problem of want to sell more but having trouble with prospect engagement, you know, I think about lead gen, I think about uh, marketing tactics. So how does the idea of marketing tactics and just general uh, sort of sales model, sales uh, operations um, management, how does that work its way in to the meta narrative for, for you and for the way that your team works? There's several steps that we take, but one that is reliably indicative is we will ask to include the VP of sales in the prospect, in the arc of the prospecting conversation. So at some point we ask the VP of sales come in and we will ask the VP of sales, what are the three to five ideas that your sales staff have to routinely get across first before they can get to the more customized version of value prop? And we'll listen and then we will see if the company is displaying those ideas in any way on their on their website and on their on their own channels most of the time the answer is no they're either largely absent or they're under communicated and that's the rich starting point i don't see this as we used to but we used to run into situations where the vp of marketing and the vp of sales were rivals hmm. yep that's crazy I mean, that's just, that's just complete insanity. And if you're a CEO and you have those two aren't getting along, you need to put them in a, put them in a room and lock the door and say, you know, we'll slip you a bedpan, but you don't get to come out until you're seeing eye to eye. Like it's in marketing, Marcom, which is what we do, should be in the service of revenue generation. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're, when you're doing B2B, how in the hell are you going to do that? Unless you're working hand in glove with your sales staff, we right. need to be of service to them. What we spend a lot of time doing is harvesting the wisdom that lies between the ears of sales staff on anecdotal basis, and we try to make it uniform and then state it in compelling language and then digitally communicate it in a highly targeted way to alleviate that early purchase decision education burden that right now rests on the shoulders of so many sales staffs. If you and I took a census of clean economy companies a month ago before the pandemic hit, we would find very few sales who would not agree with the following statement. I find it harder than I did two years ago to get prospects to engage with me, to return my emails, to return my phone calls, to get let me get in front of them. Yeah. They're almost all saying that because they're being asked to do something that customers don't want them to do. They do not want to be sold at the start of their purchase decision. I saw, st- I saw a stat that seems right to us. At any point in time, 3% of your customer prospects are ready to buy. 
yep. which means 97% are not ready to buy. And your job is to stay in, stay relevant and to stay useful while they are not ready to buy. Why? Because when they are ready to buy, they're going to remember the people who are useful. If you can demonstrate utility to me when I'm not ready to buy, when I am ready to buy, I'm going to think about you. So many quotables right now. I'm just thinking about all the ways that this is, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm absorbing this as well, right? I'm, I, I love every time I chat with you, I learn more about how to actually say in words what I've been thinking. Oh, thank you. The whole pre-sale process, I just, um, as, I, as I think about and kind of look over my notes here, the very idea right now with all of the digital tools that we have that a salesperson has to go into a cold lead, as it were, is anathema. It should be, right? I'd love to hear what you think are the hallmarks of companies that are doing this right, i.e. what kind of tools they're developing. But, but I think about HubSpot as a good example, right? HubSpot yeah. has created a phenomenal content management platform where their yes. job is to teach their prospective customers exactly how to do all of the work that they need to be able to do right to be able to use the HubSpot tool properly. Exactly. Do you have other, other examples of that where, they, where, they've, where they've been able to successfully, and maybe even you could point to companies that, that you've helped in the clean economy where they now leverage digital tools to, pre, to do the pre-selling that then leads it uh, down the path to a, a, a salesperson? So I am not, I don't have the benefit of the, of the inside knowledge of the company because I've never worked there. But I think most people in a detached private moment would say that SunPower has the best Marcom program in the industry. That's not to say that they're infallible or there aren't gaps in the program, but they're generally viewed as the most developed in their marketing systems. In the wind space, I think that Apex under Steve Bowers has done the most to develop an inbound marketing program for a product, which is clearly not a point of purchase website product. You're not gonna you're not gonna buy a wind farm with a click of a mouse but you are going to learn a lot. Why? Because his colleague, Steve Vaverick, who I think has recently left the company, but uh, the CEO, Mark Goodwin, they fundamentally get that there is a large, there's a very high variance in the experience and sophistication levels of clean energy buying among direct corporate purchasers. Some companies like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, which have been doing it for a decade, people like Ken Davies was with Microsoft and Sam Aarons, who is at Google, is now at Lyft. Uh, Bill Wheel, who did it for Facebook and Google, you know, they, they really catalyzed the direct corporate purchasing movement and imbued their respective companies with years of wisdom and sophistication on how to do it. But if you take somebody who's a chief sustainability officer, been in the job two years at large legacy Fortune 500 company, he or she has a lot of sustainability factors to look into and buying clean energy is just one of them. So what Mark Goodwin figured out with Steve's help was that they could make serious inroads in the corporate space by being educators, lead educators. And they they really jumped out ahead of a of a space the rest of it which I think was largely sleepwalking at the time. And there's been some advances EDF's doing some interesting things, but I think the mantle of superlative B2B Marcom means to be seized in both solar and wind and pace for that matter. And that's good news. That's actually good news because let's be clear, by my read of the history, most industries don't get to the level of sophistication that wind and solar and battery storage need to get to quickly. They don't get to it until decades seven or eight. And we are asking clean economy sectors to invest and sophisticate themselves much faster on that curve because we are disruptors. We're not, we don't have blue ocean in front of us. We're not Facebook inventing social media. We're not Google inventing search engines. Yes, though Facebook and Google disrupted immense numbers of companies and multiple sectors, but they had a lot of run room before people figured out, wow, these guys are going to really good, give us, some, cause us problems. Yeah. They had a lot of run room to develop. If you look at offshore wind, that's fundamentally not the case. Offshore wind is taking market share in a flat curve environment, they're taking it right out of natural gas. Natural gas is still a domestic product. They're not exporting like they want to. I think that the offshore wind sector is going to have to 
be have the Marcom maturity of a sector that's decades older than it is in order to be to successfully respond to the pushback that they are going to inevitably trigger with commercial success. So with that in mind, where do you see we're now, you know, quarter away through 2020? We've got the solar plus decade extending out before us. Got companies like SunPower and Apex who have shown strong leadership and there's so much work to be done. What do you see on the menu for leaders and companies that want to really dive in here as the leading communication practices that we need to uh, employ over the coming uh, three to five years? So the good news is that the current pandemic, I think, is an action demanding event that if properly used will help our companies catch up the years old mandate to up their digital game that they haven't responded to yet because we're all doing this from our houses. You can't go see anyone. And we have to digitally market in ways we never have. And this could go on for a few more weeks, but it's probably going to go on for a few more months. So what are we going to do? Just sit here and die? We can't do that. We've got to step up our game. And I think that, yes, it is a self-centered argument I'm making here, but I think it is crazy for companies to put a lid on their Marcom efforts. It's crazy because all you're going to do is just die slowly. You might as well take mastery of your faith. You know, every commercial solar opportunity counts. So why lose that sale to high demand charges? Did you know that you can offer up to 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth of the cost of installing a battery? With DemandX, the innovative new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy, your client can boost ROI and reduce payback time without all the expense. And as a Suncast listener, you can get a free demand charge analysis by going to extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And while you're there, check out three recent case studies on how this easy to install software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients. DemandX works for office buildings, retail, churches, and more. See for yourself at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. Did you miss out on the live sessions of the Suncast Clean Energy Summit? We had so much fun with some of the most inspiring and impactful leaders in the clean economy throughout the Americas, learning about where the industry's going and giving you practical advice on how you too can participate and grow with us. Well, you're in luck because my team recorded the whole thing and you can check it out over at suncastsummit.com. It's posted there for a limited time for free. You can also see all of the replays inside of our private Facebook group, the Clean Energy Guild, where all the videos are posted and lots of solar warriors just like you are connecting. Both are linked over at suncastsummit.com. See you on the inside. I'd love to hear maybe the, the two or three things that you feel companies can be doing right now to ensure they're out ahead of, of the wave. And yes, you know, I'd love to believe that Sun, that Suncast is such a fantastic and, and deep <laughs> platform that everyone's going to hear this and, and we're going to let the cat out of the bag. But um, the reality is, you know, those that are listening here are leaders and they're in the, on the cutting edge, bleeding edges as we, as we always have been. So I'd like to in, in, equip them in a conversation with their leadership about things that you're sharing with your customers to say, hey, look, you really should be thinking about how to move the needle and here are two to three strategies. Okay, so first, never let a crisis go to waste. If we're in a crisis of no person-to-person contact, in-person contact, then we must supplement through other means. Number two, have an opportunity to give up the idea that facts speak for themselves. They don't. Very rarely do facts speak for themselves. They must be spoken for. Third, there's no refuge in counting on what we call organic eyeballs. So quick story, have a dear friend of mine who went to work for a venture capital fund. Um, innovative, different impact investment fund, but you know, it was, they, were, they're, they think them, themselves as different and the differences are real, but they're subtle. They, they like many small companies wanted us to get them a Wall Street Journal profile. My candid response was, you're, first off, you got to earn that stuff. Two, you need to have a program in place to do something with it. And three, you're not that, what, do you, what are you doing that makes you that interest worthy that the Wall Street Journal would write about you? Because the 
Wall Street Journal doesn't want to write about a given company unless that unless what the company is doing or or their presence in the marketplace has existential impact on other companies, the rest of their readers. And to my friend's credit, he pulled a family connection and got a Wall Street Journal profile written about them. And three weeks later, he called me up and said, our deal flow from that article is exactly zero, zero. Remember those three numbers that we talked about earlier, 5.7 hours a day on screens, 15,000 messages each one of us is getting, and attention spans of seven seconds or less. So what makes us think that a big honking Wall Street Journal profile is going to bring with it so many eyeballs organically that investors will call, customers will call, et cetera? That's the belief, that's a legacy mindset, and it's just not reality. Yes, you can listen to Guy Raz, uh, How I Built This Interviews, and you will hear these billionaires who have successfully exited their, their original companies, and many of them have the story, well, we took our last $500 and we did this publicity stunt and we got some free marketing and that really, things really took off. Hmm. Yes, but you'll notice those, those are all plus 10 years ago. Yeah, and when you ask them, they would all say, that would never work today. <laughs> it just, it, it can, but it's got the effectiveness of it, like spam from Nigeria. Well, it's, it's similar, yeah. it's similar in, in, or it's in one context to Airbnb, right? Airbnb was struggling. It just so happened that it was uh, time for, I think it was the Democratic uh, National Convention, and they came up with the two different versions of cereal boxes for the candidates and sold them online. And that literally helped their company stay afloat, right? It's very creative and it's instructive on how to think outside of, pardon the pun, the box, but but to try to say, oh, we're in an election year, maybe we should do that about, uh, you know, with Biden and Trump is, is failed thinking. <laughs> yes. So my point is, we're in the era of second bounce eyeballs. If you are fortunate enough to get that Wall Street Journal profile, or if you are good enough to merit a Wall Street Journal profile and you're able to get it, you have to have a program to do something with it. What am I going to do with the time I've spent with you on this podcast? Just rely on organic ears to hear it and call me and say, gosh, we want to hire you? Absolutely not. We're going to take it. We're going to listen to the recording. We're going to pull out the main tenets that, that back up our value proposition. And we're going to emphasize those in the LinkedIn post that I'll do about the podcast when you post it. And we're going to, and then I'm going to spend two days doing, you know, three hours a day of direct messaging to prospects saying, Hey, you might find this interesting. I thought of you when we said this, et cetera, because we're trying to deliver value at every turn because only 3% of our customers are ready to buy at any given time, only 3%. And in just, so the, the last, the fourth thing I would say in, to meet the, the crisis of the moment here is do not view digital and social as cheap distribution. There's a, a, a consultant that we follow a lot called David Baker. He's one of, you know, 30 some strong cottage industry of people who coach people like me who own creative, small creative services firms. And David Baker, I think is the best. And he, and he is not shy about expressing opinions. And what he, he said something, a quote that I love, he said, no one's reading your newsletter. The market fundamentally doesn't care about what we're doing that we had doggy day at our company or that we all had a company retreat or that someone passed the five-year mark. Big whoop. Who cares? It's just more mental clutter. But if I strive to serve the class of prospects we want to sell services to, and I'm providing them insight that tells them things about their situation that we can see that they don't, that's insight. And Baker's really He's very articulate about the difference between insight and content. Content is everywhere. Insight is rare. There's a, another mentor of mine. His name is Doug Sosnick. And he was uh, Bill Clinton's White House political director know, 20 years ago, whatever. Roughly once or twice a year, he puts out a PowerPoint that analyzes the current state of American politics. And he did it. He's done a book with George W. Bush's White House political director, and they did a book about the state of America and the American electorate. So Doug's not out making his living as a thought leader, but every six months or so, he'll put out a deck and he just sends it to a few friends and it just spreads like wildfire because it's so damn smart. But the point is, it's so insightful and yet it's not frequent. 
So if I can be insightful and somewhat frequent, then I'm really in the zone. So that perfectly tees up, thank you, a question that I had around thought leadership, because like thought leadership has been for the last, I guess, three, four years, this this overused term around sort of building a personal platform, personal branding, et cetera. Many try, as you say, as you suggest, to do thought leadership. Few do it well. What do you believe? You just mentioned one, which is be insightful. Don't beat people over the head. Like you said, if you can do it seldom or 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 in, infrequently, you're going to be very well remembered. But what do, what do you think are core tenets of solid thought leadership? And how do you put that into a program as a leader of a company? If you're doing thought leadership for someone else, your job is to find rare or unique strengths and vantage point and find a way to comfortably capture it from him or her. And often this is the CEO who's the busiest person in the company and who has the least time to sit and kick back and put their feet up on the desk and and spout thoughts. Mining the principal's brain for some original thinking is absolutely essential. What are you seeing? Whatever, which means you got to come with some questions to ask them that that pop out the latest insight. That's more tactical. I think the really big thing is I I was raised in a time I was professionally raised in a time when people who did what I did, you were resolutely in the background. Your job was to get other people well known and prominent, not yourself. And if you, as the comms staffer or comms rep became well-known, something was off. But what, what's changed is the market rewards prominence. It equates prominence with skill. And I've had to reconcile myself to that because, you know, you, you've, you've, I, I, when I read Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outliers, I remember the part where he talks about it takes 10,000 hours to master a skill, a musical instrument, a professional study, an art form, whatever. And I did a rough calculation. And I realized that I'd spent 65,000 hours of intentional practice on my craft. I don't know that that doesn't make me infallible. It just makes me pretty good. And what I've realized is that nobody is going to, it's very hard to make a living doing what I do as the restaurant that has no sign out front and you get, you come in through the back door and it's just word of mouth. It's very hard to do because prominence and regularity of contact and wisdom of what you offer rewarded by the marketplace and being just a really low key, super skilled communicator is not, it's punished by the marketplace. The first thing that popped in my mind was surely this applies to a certain category of types of business or types of, of commerce, because you don't see Zuckerberg, for example, even I think Jack Dorsey, right? Like, yeah, he waxes prophetic on Twitter, but you don't see them out doing these types of thought leadership the way that you do Richard Branson uh, or, or others who the types of organizations, I don't know, like what, what defines the type of organization maybe? So thought leadership is literally leading with the power of your thinking. I think that successful thought leadership is deployed, is best deployed to narrate insight from a company leader, a company executive team, or a company. It's it's not impossible, but it's hard to do Marcom through thought leadership, mostly. You can supplement, but it's pretty hard. It's hard to do public affairs through thought leadership because thought leadership is occasional. If you're, if you're on the insight-only track, if you're not doing content, you're doing insight, it takes a while. You got you to think about it. You got to refine it. We're going to be releasing a, a book here in a couple of weeks. It's been six months in production. We got the next one. We've got it's been 18 months in production. And part of it's just, you know, the scrum of daily work, but part of it's just, you know, stuff's not clear and you got to think through it and you got to do some more analysis, whatever, because we're, you know, I'm inside only. I don't think anybody wants to hear what Mike Casey thinks about, about the latest flavor of ice cream. It just, you know, who cares? But if it's something that we've really drilled down on and I can bring 65,000 hours of experience to bear on a particular area in which we live every day, well, then we, then we approach the zone of being inherently useful in our thinking. And that enables us to lead. I want to come back to that 65,000 hours you said that you've put into, as you've calculated, honing your craft. What is the core essence of that craft? Getting a targeted group of people to engage in an awareness, attitude, or behavior change to support a company or organizational objective. Why do you have that so tip of tongue? Mm, I probably said it 65,000 times. 
I love it. Okay, getting <laughs> so getting target groups of people to engage in awareness, attitude, or behavior change towards to support a company or organizational goal. That moment that we just had talking about thought leadership, talking about how you've honed your craft, is in in its own in its very essence a masterclass on being very very clear. Number one, very clear about what you are are meant to accomplish. Number two, being very clear about how to enunciate it, which again goes back to the very craft that you've honed, how to communicate value, right? Clutter is the enemy of value these days. In terms of what I do, if if you accommodate clutter, if you encourage clutter to run up billings, you're you're just totally undercutting the effectiveness of what you're out to do for a client company. Simple, clear, direct. Without those, how are you going to penetrate the noise? Shout louder. In thought leadership, there are three drivers of prominence, of attention. There is your organic import as an institution or a incumbent in a particular position or office. You're the CEO of GE. What you say matters because you're the CEO of GE. You know, what restaurant you're spotted at on Friday night might be of interest to somebody. Then there is how you say what you say. This is the mastery of the Kardashians. You know, my, my daughter once joked that the Kardashians are like iceberg lettuce. You can find it everywhere. There's no nutritional value and it doesn't taste bad. But the Kardashians have stayed on tabloid covers 10 or 15 years because of how they do what they do. I mean, what's the Kardashian family built on besides makeup, a murder trial, and skimpy clothes and a sex change operation? What have they done? You know, I mean, I just, they're, they're not on the highly useful people's list, but yet they're prominent. And it's because of how they do what they do. They're on, there's just, there's almost no length to which they're willing to, they're not willing to go to generate attention. And then there's third one, which is, what you say. And almost all clean economy companies are relegated to that third vector. It's there that you need to focus. How valuable are you making what you have to say to the people you want to say it to? This goes back to, in the very beginning, uh, what sort of frameworks do you employ? I love the way uh, you consistently come back to, here are the three things. Is that something that you train your CEO clients to think about as well? How they, how they tell their stories? Yes. And I also do it with the staff. If you work for me and you are running point on an account, if you can't, if you can't send me like this, literally, you have to do this. You must send me a boxes and arrows hand drawing on the back of a napkin. You got to take a picture of your cell phone. You got to send it to me or you got to come bring it to me and, and show me. Because if you can't get the success path for a company, a client company down on boxes and arrows on the back of a napkin, you don't have it down. Richard Branson once said, any fool can complicate something. It takes a master to simplify it. You know, basically we're going to go, we're going to do this, then we're going to do that. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And they're going to, it's going to achieve the objective or in a case of communications, particularly for B2B without point of purchase websites, it's a correlative exercise. It's not a cause and effect. So you can't, you can really can never claim cause and effect. Mike, tell me something that's true for you that very few people would agree with you on. This doesn't answer your question with any directness, but I I think where we are frequently, I am frequently posing as part of the option set, I will frequently make a suggestion for a tactical approach that is deliberately outside the comfort zone of the client. It'll be part of the option set. It's not the only one, but it's part of the option set. And I know that you do that for a reason. Can you explore? Can you help us explore why you do that? Because part of my job is to expand their thinking, expand out the rounds of what's possible. I've had the challenge for most of my life of being of having double scoliosis, and I was going to slated to have very substantial back surgery. And a friend of mine gave me the gift of telling me about what's called the Feldenkrais method, which is a movement breathing pattern that that helps you realign body. And one of the tenets of Feldenkrais, if you move, if you deliberately stay within the bounds of comfort, you begin to expand the bounds of comfort out. So you can get greater mobility by moving within the bounds of your current mobility, which is very different than the no pain, no gain mentality of, you know, Gold's Gym. If we can establish 
an environment of trust with a executive team, we can then present ideas, one of which or several of which are really at the outer edge of the comfort zone. That doesn't mean they'll go for it right now, but it does mean that it'll stretch their thinking a little bit. Same principle. And the next time that you present it, hopefully the activities you've been engaged in have moved them closer to uh, that yes. comfort zone. Okay. That makes, yes. a lot, that makes a lot of sense. Well, here's, an, here's a question I suggest, I, I, I suppose I potentially have some answers for, but, but I'm really genuinely curious what comes uh, first for you. What apart from your field, the core element essence of the work that you do, are you most fanatical about? I have learned a lot about life through jujitsu. And I think that one of the lessons is that attachment to your own ego is almost always an encumbrance. And the more, the more of an observant listener I am, the more effective I am at pretty much anything I want to do professionally. You know, BJJ is humbling because, you know, you're, unless you're one of the best in the world, you are going to get tapped. When you're forced through a joint lock or a choke to tap on the other, tap on the other guy's arm or whatever to say, okay, that's enough. It's called getting tapped or tapping out. And part of BJJ is just you're going to get tapped out and you're going to get tapped out routinely. People who are younger than you, in my case, you know, I'm, I'm usually the oldest. I, I think I'm still the oldest guy at my gym. They call me the antique. <laughs> and losing your attachment to import of you know, your own importance, your opinions, et cetera, I think is, is one of the biggest benefits. And also, I think the, your one's relationship to fear, because there's in combat sports, there's a lot of fear. I, I find that's much truer with boxing, which I do, which I also do. But there's just something very arresting about getting hit in the face and hitting the other person in the face. And, you know, it's all good. Not personal, but just the, that's just the sport. And I think that when you do that stuff on a regular basis, when you get that adrenalized state, what are otherwise tense situations in business and in professional life just aren't that tense. It's just not that big a deal. And I find that immensely useful. Definitely before speeches in front of any crowd, whatever, I have found my jujitsu experience to be, you know, the whole practice of jujitsu is incredibly useful. You've mentioned a number of uh, mentors and important key figures already thus far, but do you have any more lessons or life uh, kind of takeaways or life lessons that you have institutionalized from your career or your mentors? My uh, lead coach right now, his name's Ryan Hall. They call him the wizard. He's, uh, I think he's ranked 15th in the UFC at, Fezer at, at Featherweight. He's, um, he's a brilliant guy. And he said one time, don't fight afraid. What he meant by that was not that you, you know, fear is organic. If you want to be comfortable, stay in bed. You know, if you want to, if you want to be an effective marketer, it's, it's a stretch. It's not, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about being uncomfortable does not mean being reckless. Uh, being foolish, other people's money or um, business investment, or whatever. It just means that Virgil was right when he wrote fortune favors the bold. And I think the other, the two, my two favorite sayings are by Confucius. One of them is a very apropos to clean economy scaling. It's better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. That is particularly true in this time of pandemic better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. And the other one is really just for the people who naysay our ability to solve the climate crisis. And that is those who say something cannot be done should not interrupt those who are doing it. I'd say the greatest, greatest challenge in my career has been how to effectively handle naysayers. This world's populated with them. What do you think right now with clean economy in the focus is not going to change? Well, in our lifetime, the existential threat of global instability or global unsustainability is unfortunately not going to change. Let's be clear. The, cl the global climate disruption crisis is only one of five or six horsemen of the, of the pending, you know, I guess you could say the, 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 the riders of the apocalypse. We've got overpopulation. We have flattening of the biota. We have toxification of the biosphere, desertification, loss of topsoil. You know, and then we, and then we, and then we've got you know the scrambling, scrambling of the species. I mean, it's just you're you're putting you're putting English ivy in American forests, and you're putting you know Asian tiger mosquitoes and stink bugs here. It's just it's you get the idea. But the point is, we have no shortage of 
severe sustainability questions that lie in front of us. And we, I think, are the challenge of our times is re, re-engineering the way we conduct the global economy in a way where we stop its inherent unsusta- unsustainability. That is going to keep on keeping on because I don't think the original sin was eating an apple. I think the original sin is treating our pantry like a toilet. And as it, you know, all you got to do is just, it, it, in the 20 years I've lived in this house, I have walked around this neighborhood day after day after day, walking dogs. And I can tell you that over time, I've seen two things grow, litter by the side of the road and Japanese stilt grass, which is a, which is a prolific invasive. I've seen them just mushroom. Human beings don't get that there's no away and throw away. There's no away and throw away. When I throw something down, when I throw my cigarette butt down on the ground, it's not biodegradable. It's a piece of plastic with a lot of toxic heavy metals in it. And it's not going anywhere. No one's coming to pick it up. Your mommy doesn't live here. And if you just export that mentality, and the challenge with these devices is that that we all carry around is they're making us less present. Yeah, you mentioned the, it made me think about Earth Overshoot Day earlier when you said uh, we're living off the principle, not the interest. And I, I did a whole um, small episode, mini episode on Earth Overshoot Day when I learned about it because I was fascinated by it. You know, it's been moving backwards in time uh, of time of the year, but it's the time of year where we literally overshoot. We start consuming from next year's resources. Overshootday.org is a great resource. Um, they've actually got country level overshoot days, which I think is amazing. You know what the country is on the planet that uh, hits overshoot day first? Uh, I would imagine we do. No, maybe Qatar, maybe Qatar. It is. It's Qatar. You you nailed it. That's awesome. I'm, I'm amazed that you got that. Yeah. And uh, Luxembourg right after it. United Arab Emirates right after that. Kuwait. And those are the only four ahead of the United States. Canada, coincidentally, right behind the USA. As we round third base to home here, I'd love to hear more about how you uh, feed your mind. Do you have any books specifically that you read uh, or have made a huge impact on your life or that you give away? Yes. The Power of Now and the New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle, yeah. Power of Now and the New Earth. Yeah. And I feed, and I feed my mind by, uh, we, we live, we abut a wooded stream Valley and we own a chunk of the Valley and, and I'll, uh, very frequently pretty much for four seasons a year, we'll go out there on weekend nights and, and, uh, sit by my around a, a small woods fire and just listen. So that actually falls into the next, uh, the next question, which is a consistent habit or practice that's had a huge impact on, on your life, which. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I do that, but I'm, I'm a 30 year meditator. I mean, so we've, we've covered jujitsu and, and um, we also rescue, I don't I mention this, but, I, but we rescue a, a breed of dog called Kane Corsos and uh, got two rescues here. So we spent some time doing that. You also mentioned a couple of books that you guys are about to release. What are those? Uh, do you want to talk about the, those books? Here? Yeah, we, we've, got a, we've got a sector analysis on uh, offshore wind that's about to come out. And then there's one other that I'm going to I'm gonna hold the pattern on, but it's, uh, all, it's a look into a whole, whole new clean economy sector. I can't wait. And put folks can find that at your website, which is? Which is tigercom with two M's dot U.S. Perfect. Well, let's end today with a bold prediction. Mike Casey, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I think the current pandemic recession double hit will vault clean economy into an era of opportunity that we have only dreamed of. It's going to be bumpy getting there, and it's not going to be clear that we're getting there all the time, but I think it'll put it on the horizon and it's up to us to sail toward it. I'm going to have to have you back and talk specifically on that uh, very topic. Uh, and then in the meantime, I hope that folks will go look at, uh, to spend some time connecting with you on LinkedIn, check out tigercom.com. We've been hanging out with Mike Casey, founder and principal president of Tigercom, one of the leading Marcom and PR firms in the clean economy and indeed in the U.S. Mike, it is such a genuine pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Nico, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. Have me back anytime. I'm, we're, we're always interested in chatting with you. Thanks so much. Man, talk about underpromise and overdeliver, eh? Mike Casey has wisdom and value oozing from his pores in this conversation. I told you that you wouldn't regret sticking around all the way through this one. Was I right? Would you hit me up on LinkedIn with your top one or two takeaways? And be sure to tag Mike and thank him for his wisdom shared here today. All right. Well, that's a wrap 
on today's episode. But if you are eager to keep learning, well, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with social media links, book recommendations, and even a full transcript of the discussion over on the blog at mysuncast.com. And while you're there, I'd encourage you to consider joining the Suncast Tribe, our regular announcement channel, where you can stay up to date with all the ways that we're trying to help you grow. And in case you missed it, we recently launched our private Facebook group called the Clean Energy Guild. That community is quickly growing, and I'd love to have your input there as well as we build the most trusted community in clean tech. I hope that you'll tune in next week as I bring the legend Paul Wormser onto Suncast at long last, helping us understand the latest Trump trade case mess. We'll be bringing you a double value episode on Thursday with two Omnidian executives and industry insiders, none other than Brad Davis and Cedric Britton. It's a good time to be tuning into Suncast. There's so much value being shared. We're honored to have you here. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.